scripture reading today comes from the book of Acts. It's chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He predestined, or he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but I will baptize with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, the Sabbath day journey away. And when, he had, when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. How is everyone's new year going so far? Okay. Uh, my new year started off with me being terribly sick. Uh, so last, last Sunday, I uh, was laying in bed with like a bucket next to me so that <clears throat> I could throw up into it. Um, the day before, right? So I'm, I'm sick. We're, me and my wife were both sick. The day before, I text the elder group saying, guys, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to make it on Sunday uh, to preach. But as we all know, Darren, because he's a stud, stepped in last minute and delivered the word faith, faithfully for us last Sunday. So all that to say, I'm so thankful for our team of guys here at Pillar, for our team of elders, and for Darren, uh, who was just willing to put himself out there and uh, step in. You know, I, I texted the elders Sunday or Saturday afternoon, right? The next day he had to preach. He was not expecting it, uh, but he did a great job. So we have a lot to be thankful for in the people that God has blessed us with in this church. Um, I am certainly blessed. Let me begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll go ahead and jump right into our text this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness and your mercy. God, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. And God, we just confess that we 
Uh, we're just desperate. We're, we desperately need you to be at work in our lives. It is so easy for us to become dist distracted. It is so easy for us to become uh, afraid and overwhelmed by uh, things and circumstances that are far beyond our control, God. So would you help us to rest in you, uh, find the peace uh, that is present in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to fear you and not fear man. Help us to worship you, love you, and honor you. God, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, I would assume that most of us are familiar with uh, Ulysses S. Grant. You know, figure from history, Ulysses S. Grant. He was the commanding general of the Union Army during the Civil War, uh, the 18th president of the United States. I, we're, I know we probably don't always think about U.S. history, but think back to your U.S. history class. Uh, you'll probably remember a little bit about Ulysses S. Grant. One detail about his life that I find rather interesting is the fact that by many accounts, he was a very average kind of guy. Um, he was an average student, uh, average in intellect. He, he's, his physical attributes were very average. He was barely 5'8", 140 pounds. So he gives guys like me a lot of hope. He was a great man nonetheless. Uh, very unremarkable in a lot of ways and by many accounts. Uh, one of his classmates at West Point said this about Grant. He said, Grant was such a quiet, unassuming fellow when a cadet that nobody would have picked him out as one who was destined to occupy such a place in history. And we even see this um, after his uh, first couple years in the army, he gets out and tries to live like regular life. Uh, he tries his hand at farming um, and he really struggles. He ends up having to work for his father-in-law, doing odd jobs, doing things like selling firewood on the side of the road. So he's really struggling to make a living and kind of just get by as a normal person, right? Average kind of guy with a lot of average kind of struggles. But once the Civil War starts, the Union Army, of course, is desperate for soldiers with battle experience. So immediately, he's pulled away from his own personal concerns and circumstances, and he's sucked up right into this narrative that is so much greater than uh, just his immediate concerns. Right? He's pulled into something uh, that is much bigger than his own immediate concerns, his own personal circumstances, his own desire just to kind of get by and make a living. Now, Ulysses S. Grant, certainly not perfect, but his life is an example of the truth that meaning and significance are found in something much bigger than what is going on right here, right now, right? Uh, meaning and significance is about something much greater than our own immediate concerns and our own personal circumstances, our own struggles, our day-to-day, -day, trying to get by, all that stuff. There's something much bigger that is going on, and we find our significance as we connect to that greater narrative. Right? Ulysses found that his life uh, became part of this narrative that was so much bigger than what was immediately going on uh, with his situation and his circumstances. 
According to our passage this morning, according to Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, the meaning and significance of life is all connected to one thing. It all depends on one thing, and that is our relation to the ascended king. Right? Everything revolves around the ascended Christ in this passage. And we see in this passage that all believers relate to the ascended Christ in two primary ways. Number one, we're recipients. We've received grace upon grace from the hand of our king. And number two, we are commissioned as witnesses. You just take a look at the disciples in this passage, for example. The disciples could not receive the Holy Spirit until their king ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. And then upon receiving the gift of the Spirit, they're tasked, they're commissioned with being Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? Our, the, the meaning and significance of the Christian life depends, all of that depends on how we relate to our ascended king. And we relate to our ascended king as recipients and witnesses. Now, we have been going through a sermon series called The Gospel According to Mary. This is our, our last sermon in that series. And this is, in fact, the last place in Scripture where Mary's mentioned at all. We see, like, just kind of as an offhand comment, that she is included with uh, the community of the early church and the disciples, the people who saw Jesus resurrected. They saw him uh, ascend to the throne, right? She is within this early Christian community. And that's really all we see about her. This last place she's mentioned, and compared to everything else going on in the New Testament, she really gets very little attention, comparatively. Right? As important as she is, as crucial as she is, as instrumental as she was to the birth of our Savior, right? the arrival of our King, she gets very little attention and space devoted to her. And that is for the simple fact that it's just not all about her. She's not the center of the universe. She's not, the, she's not what the scriptures are all about. No, everything is about Jesus Christ. And the reason why Mary is so important is because she was a recipient of God's grace and she became a witness to his glory. She received the gift of a son as the power of the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. She received grace upon grace from the hand of the Lord. And she is so important even today because she provides such a clear and reliable testimony about the nature and character of her son. You guys, I want us to understand that th the same is true for us. We have received grace upon grace from the hand of God, and our significance at this time is found in how we are witnesses to the glory of Christ. Just like Mary had a, an incredibly unique testimony about her son, so do each of us. We all have a unique testimony 
about the power and glory of Jesus Christ. He's met each one of us in deep, meaningful ways that are unique to our struggles and our personalities and our circumstances, right? No one can provide the testimony about the glory of God that you can. Each of our witnesses are unique. And we find that we're caught up in in a much more significant story as we embrace the fact that we relate to our ascended king as recipients and as witnesses. All right, this, this takes us to our main idea this morning. All right, main idea, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, is through the gift of the ascended Christ, we are brought into a story greater than our own. Three simple points. Point number one, we're going to focus on the gift. Number two, the ascended king. And number three, the greater story that we're brought into. And what I hope we can see is that both the gift and the story that we're brought into, both of these things depend on the fact that our king is risen and ascended. It all revolves around our ascended king. Through the gift of the ascended Christ, we are brought into a story greater than our own. So, continuing with point number one here. In Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, we see in the early church, uh, the first days of the church, we see that the disciples are ordered to stay in Jerusalem, and they're ordered to wait. They're told to wait for the promise of the Father. And this promise is identified as the Holy Spirit. So verse 4, he ordered them not to to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the promise of the Father is identified as the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And this, like, you know, we we have a broad knowledge of the Bible. This may not seem super remarkable to us, but really within the history of redemption, within the history of Israel, this is like a a very unique, one-of-a-kind thing when the, the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost. This is a remarkable event. The reason this is so monumental is because way back in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 12, God made a promise to Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham to bless him so that he will be a blessing to many nations, right? When we think about God's promise to Abraham, we can think of it as the promise of blessing, generally. So they've been waiting for this promise, this promise of blessing, since the time of Abraham. And they've actually been reminded that this promise has yet to be fulfilled because, remember, God gave Abraham a sign that he would fulfill this promise, and that sign was circumcision. So throughout all their history, they're reminded over and over again in their flesh, that the promise has yet to be 
fulfilled. They're waiting for the promise. And what we see here, why this is so monumental, is that the promise made to Abraham way back in Genesis is now being fulfilled in the giving of the Holy Spirit. So Paul, for example, will parallel the blessing of Abraham with the giving of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. So Galatians 3, verse 14, we see here, in, in verse 13, Paul says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Why? Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So the blessing of Abraham is paralleled with the promised spirit. So we, we know at least uh, that the blessing of Abraham includes the giving of the spirit. This is why this is such a remarkable, unique, one-time event in the history of redemption, uh, the pouring out of the spirit at Pentecost. Now, the Holy Spirit is, of course, the spirit of God. And it's important, it's uh, crucial, it's very important that we confess and acknowledge that the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. He's not just a power floating around. He's not semi-divine or sub-God. No, the Holy Spirit is God. He is everything that God is. Just like the Son is everything that God is, and just like the Father is everything that God is. Yet there's only one God. Now, this is the mystery of the Trinity. There is one God in three persons who are equal in power and in glory. Now, we see the divinity of the Holy Spirit communicated to us in a variety of ways in Scripture. One of the primary ways we see the Spirit's divinity is in the fact that throughout Old and New Testament, the Spirit is referred to as a, an active personal agent uh, that has his own will and volition. And we see that this active personal agent retains the authority and the power to do what only God can do. So, for example, only God has the power to create life where there is no life. Only God has the power to give life, and we see that the Holy Spirit retains this exclusive power of God to give life. So that's one way, like, the Spirit's divinity is communicated to us throughout Scripture. But we also see places where he's just flat out called God. And one of these places comes up right here in the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 5, a couple of uh, chapters later, we see that Peter is confronting a man who's trying to hurt the church. This man's name is Ananias, and Peter says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. If you're paying attention here, Peter opens up by saying, Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And he finishes his thought by concluding, You have not lied to man, but you have lied to God. Right? 
directly here, Peter is calling the Holy Spirit God. So it's important that we confess this. It's important that, you know, uh, we understand that we need to make no reservations, no qualifications about the divinity of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. Full stop, point blank period. The Holy Spirit is God. Therefore, the gift of the Holy Spirit is nothing less than the gift of God's very own presence. The gift of the Holy Spirit that Christ pours out on us is the gift of God's presence. In other words, it is the gift of direct relational access. Not just any kind of access. It's not the kind of access you have to your boss or to one of your coworkers or to even a friend. This is the kind of access that a child has to their parents. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, that God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit is the gift of God's presence, and his presence is evidence that we have been made sons and daughters. Now, the presence of the Spirit not only indicates that God is at work in our personal lives, that God is at work in our hearts, but his presence also indicates something that something much bigger is going on here. And we see this bigger something in chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verse 17. Here the apostle Peter is quoting the prophet Joel, and Peter says, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. According to Peter, the spirit is going to be poured out at a certain time. And that certain time, Peter calls the last days. In the last days, it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit. So the presence of the spirit indicates the arrival of the last days. Now, what are the last days? Generally speaking, the last days are the days in which God's kingdom will overtake the world. All right, this is God's kingdom breaking into our fallen human reality. That's what the last days are all about. All right, these are the days in which rebels are given the full benefits of sonship. So the significance of the Holy Spirit is not just limited to what he does for you, what he does inside your heart, the gifts that he gives you. You know, even though that's important and good, the significance of the Holy Spirit is not just limited to ourselves personally, right? Just like the gospel is not about just me and my salvation, right? The gospel is about much more. It's actually about God restoring all of his creation. The significance of the Holy Spirit is not just limited to what you get, 
and what you are unable to do. No, his arrival indicates the arrival of God himself and that God is here to restore his creation, to judge all evil, to right every wrong, and to establish his kingdom on this earth forever. Through the gift of the Spirit, we are caught up into something much more significant than our own personal circumstances. All right, point number two, looking at the ascended Christ. So the ascended Christ, again, he's the center of everything that's going on here. Without an ascended king, we don't get the gift of the Spirit. And without the gift of the Spirit, we're not, we don't receive the commission to go to the ends of the earth. Now, the ascension can be puzzling. Like, we don't exactly understand how it fits into God's plan of salvation. Right? We understand how the crucifixion works, Right, that Jesus Christ paid for our sins on the cross. We understand that he was raised to life to defeat death. Like We understand those things. But what on earth does the ascension have to do with our salvation? Well, it's quite important, and hopefully I'll be able to explain it to you here. The ascension is crucial, and it really gives us an assurance that is so firm, so immovable, Think about it. Jesus, in the book of John, he says to his disciples that it is better for you that I go away. They could, they're probably thinking, thinking to themselves, like, what are you talking about? How is it better for us that you leave? Let's go ahead and look at, look at that passage together. John chapter 16, verse 7. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In God's economy, in God's sovereign plan of redemption, in order for us to receive the Spirit, in order for us to receive the gift of the Spirit, Christ as the Son of Man needed to ascend to the right hand of the throne of God. That is why it is better. Jesus is essentially telling his disciples, better things are yet to come. That is why it's good that I leave. Better things are coming. It's like Christmas season, right? Some of us love Christmas season, but for regular people, we don't want it always to be Christmas season. We don't always want it to be Christmas season. If it was Christmas season all the time, it would, like, we'd get tired of it so fast, it would drive us crazy hearing the same jingles and songs over and over again. It can't always be Christmas season. And that's because there is more to God's plan than just his first arrival, than Christ's first advent. We've been given more to celebrate than just the first advent of Christ. There are still better things yet to come, namely God's forever kingdom that he's going to establish right here on this earth. 
So you see, in order to gift us with his spirit, in order to grant us direct relational access, in order to bring about the days in which rebels are given the full benefits of sonship, Christ had to ascend to the right hand of the Father. In the ascension, Jesus takes up his seat as king. This is why the ascension is so important. This is exactly what it has to do with our salvation. When Jesus ascends, that is the inauguration of his rule as the son of man. As son of God, as second person of the Trinity, Jesus has always ruled and reigned, right? The, the son of God has an eternal throne, an eternal kingdom. He's never not been on the throne. But in the ascension, Jesus' rule as son of man is inaugurated. That's when it's brought about. Jesus now reigns as both God and man. So we can live now with the assurance, uh, not only that Jesus is the all-powerful conqueror who defeated death, but that he is the most gracious king that gives us the benefits, the blessings of uh, full sonship. He's the one who makes us sons and daughters. That is the gift that we receive from the hand of our king. So we can live with that assurance and we can live with the assurance that he is reigning as the incarnate son. He is reigning as both God and man. Now, I'm excited about this, and I'm not sure if you share my excitement, but hopefully I'll, I'll be able to, to show you why this is such good news, that Jesus is reigning as incarnate son. The ascension does not negate Christ's humanity. So Jesus didn't ditch his humanity. He didn't leave it here on earth when he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. It's easy for us to think when, you know, when we think about someone ascending to heaven, we typically think about a soul leaving its body to go into heaven, right? We think about a disembodied ascension, kind of like how we, like what we see in the cartoons, right? Tom and Jerry, we see uh, Tom's soul ascending to heaven. He's disembodied, going up this golden escalator. This is not the way that we should think about Jesus' ascension. He wasn't just the spirit when he ascended to the throne of God. No, he was embodied son of man. So the fact that Tom's soul is going to heaven. Like, that's not the only problem with this picture. The other problem, the other main problem with this picture is that uh, cats don't go to heaven. <laughs> right? We all know that cats end up at the seawall <laughs> where they're taken care of by old ladies. <laughs> Guys, I hope you understand why this is so important. The ascension does not negate Christ's humanity one bit. Here's why I find this so comforting. Jesus is the guarantee 
Jesus is the guarantee that resurrection life is embodied physical life. Jesus didn't float up to heaven as a spirit, but he ascended to the throne as a resurrected man to sit on the throne of God's kingdom forever. Brothers and sisters, life after death, life after death for the believer is not some ethereal, inoculated, fuzzy, foggy existence in the clouds. But it is more real, it is more tangible, it is more embodied, it is more physical than anything that we've ever experienced. We will be more alive then than we are today. Now it's crazy to think about. Death is still scary to think about. But we can be assured because our resurrected king has ascended and sits at the right hand of God, we know for a fact that resurrection life is physical, embodied life to the fullest. Through the gift of our ascended king, right, we're brought up into something that is much greater than our own immediate needs and concerns. This brings us to our last point. In verses 6 through 8, back in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, The disciples ask Jesus a question. They say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Um, And Jesus says to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So we see right here that the disciples, their immediate concern, their immediate context is are you going to make Israel a powerful nation again? Right? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Right? That's their immediate concern. That's the that that's their circumstance, right? That's what they're expectant of. They're expecting the kingdom, and it's pretty clear that Jesus is king because he just conquered death. So their expectation is of a kingdom, but what does Jesus say to them? He basically says, you don't need to know. Like it's it's not information for you. It's way above your pay grade, right? You do not need to know when this will happen. Rather, he empowers them. He gives them a spirit to empower them to be, what does he say? He says, my witnesses. My witnesses. All right, the disciples understood right there. They were told right there that their lives no longer belong to them. Right? Possessive personal pronoun. You're my witnesses. So at this point, you know, they're not thinking about how they can advance their careers or make money or get rich or all the things that I am so that I I tend to get distracted with, right? No, ownership is taken of their lives. And that goes for every believer. But we no longer belong to ourselves. It's just like we read in the catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but I belong to my faithful Savior, 
Jesus Christ. Church, the significance of a Christian is, the significance of the Christian life is directly tied to the ascended king, the person and work of Jesus. And this is so like different from what we see expressed in our culture, right? Our, our culture, I mean, honestly, everywhere around the world has really adopted the idea known as expressive individualism. Now, that's a, that's a fancy term for um, these kind of catchphrases that we see in social media, like YOLO or live your truth. Whatever kind of self-centered tagline people come up with, that is a result of expressive individualism. Expressive individualism says that the purpose of life is to find your deepest, most authentic self and express that to the world. Expressive individualism says uh, this would be the idea that all of my significance and value is not determined by the things around me or outside me or what anyone else says about me, but it's only determined by what I think and feel about myself. Now, that's not only wishful thinking at best, but it's just not a Christian idea. Right? Our significance, our value is directly tied to the person and work of Jesus Christ and praise God for that. Because no matter what you think and feel about yourself, you know, like expressive individualism would, would have you believe, no matter what you think and feel about yourself, you can know for a fact that someone outside of you, someone greater than you, has objectively placed an infinite amount of worth on your life. Because you know he's made you his son and daughter. We do not generate our own significance or our own value. It's something that's given to us by God. To all, all mankind, through the image of God placed in, in men and women, and to Christians more directly and specifically because he's made us his sons and daughters. Church, this is why missions is all about Jesus Christ. Right? And right here in verse 8, we see like the basic outline for missions. Right? God uh, tasks his disciples with being his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we don't have like a ton of time to unpack this, but when we think about missions, however we think about missions, we need to keep these three categories in our brain. Jerusalem, Samaria, ends of the earth. Here's what I mean by that. Jerusalem, for the disciples, Jerusalem consisted of people that had the same culture and language that they did. Samaria, very different culture, same language. Ends of the earth, different language, different culture. So as we're trying to grow in our missionary efforts, uh, we need to keep these three categories in mind. And, and you know what? I'm... I'm challenged by this. I don't always think about this, right? There's room for all of us to grow in this area. So if you're more oriented, if you're more geared to just kind of sticking around your own little community, then 
pray about and start thinking about how you can reach others with a different culture or a different language than yourself. Or if you have the tendency to think about missions as if missions only concerns people who have a different language and a different culture than you, then remember actually missions is quite accessible because it also concerns the people right there that, shame, that, that share the same culture and language as you. Hopefully that's all making sense. That is how, that is one way that we can grow uh, to have a healthy view of missions. But church, I also want to thank you for being so intentional about Jesus Christ in your communities and when you're doing outreach, right? We've done a couple things over the Christmas season to reach out to the local community. And there's never been a doubt in my mind that these efforts were about us doing a good work or trying to make a name for ourselves in the community or just, you know, trying to be good Samaritans or whatever. No, it's always been about Jesus Christ. And that has been very clear from you guys. So thank you so much. Keep up the good work. Keep being intentional about Jesus in your efforts in outreach. Through the gift of our ascended king, we not only have the opportunity, but we have the privilege of joining a greater narrative uh, than what's just going on in our own immediate personal circumstances. So like I said, Ulysses S. Grant, not a perfect example, not a perfect guy who's a sinner like all of us, but he did understand that he was part of a movement, of a cause that was much greater than he was. Uh, this is what he says in his memoirs, reflecting on his position. He says, there are many men who would have done better than I did in the circumstances which I, in which I found myself. If I had never held command, if I had fallen, there were 10,000 behind who would have followed the contest to the end and never surrendered the union. Grant was so confident about his cause. He was so confident about his movement because him and the people around him all shared one trait. And that was loyalty. 10,000 behind him who would have followed the contest to the end and never surrendered. The, the trait that Grant and his comrades shared was loyalty. That is why he could be so confident about the cause and the movement that he was part of. Church, we are part of something significantly greater than any movement or nation, right? As important as that time was in history, we are part of something so much greater. We are part of the kingdom of God himself. And our part in God's greater story depends on one thing, depends on one trait, loyalty to the ascended king. So church, are you loyal to yourself 
your desires, your cause, or will you be loyal to the king who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you, we thank you for the kindness and the mercy that you've shown to us in our risen king and the work of our risen king. God, thank you for giving us rebels, us sinners, the full benefits of sonship, of direct access to you as your children. Father, this is an infinite gift that we could never exhaust. Lord, help us to enjoy it and rest in it for what it is. God, would you meet us where we're at? Would you change our hearts? Would you change our minds? Would you change our lives, Lord? Help us to serve you faithfully. Help us to love you and know you more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.